Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Good evening everyone, I'm just going to continue um, in the Bible reading, um, this time from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead... You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive, and what I have forgiven If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. Um, I'm just going to pray for Chris um, as he opens a word for us, if you just bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Chris. We thank you for the man of God that he is, a man determined to spread your word Um, and be in community with us. We pray your peace upon his heart as he comes and opens your word tonight. May you give him uh, your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Evening, everyone. Let me set the scene for you. You're on the train. You're in a carriage, but not just any carriage. You're in one of the quiet carriages. I assume you guys know how the quiet carriages work on city trains. There's like a carriage designated to being. It's it's a really intuitive name, isn't it? And in this carriage, there is someone. And they're talking on the phone. Not whispering on the phone, talking on the phone. In the quiet carriage. Do you, A, approach the person and draw their attention to the quiet carriage signs. Do you be? Ignore it. Maybe they've had a hard day and they just need to like, decompress and, and process with a friend. Do you see? Hope someone else will speak up. Or do you D, leave the carriage? If someone confronts them, this could get awkward. All right, discuss. I'll give you 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> I sense a lull, so I'm seizing the moment. I can't read this rumor. You're brave enough to confess what you do. A's, just nod, just nod so I can see it. B's, C's, a lot of C's, okay. D, no D's? 
Well, I'm a deep for sure. <laughs> I would not want that conflict. All right. Good to know where you're at. Thank you. At Samantz, we want to be a community of lifelong disciples of Jesus that engage our world with grace and truth. Now, hopefully, if you've come to our church more than once before, that sounds familiar. Grace and truth. John 1 says that Jesus is filled with grace and truth. And we want these two qualities to define us, to define our relationships with each other, to define our interactions with the world. I think it's a beautiful vision we have for our church, a wonderful ambition. But it's not easy. It's hard enough to know how to show grace and truth to the person on the train. Fortunately, God hasn't just left us to figure it all out on our own. The Bible has lots of examples of what grace and truth can look like in a community. And that's what we see in our passage that Ibi just read for us. We see a relatively young Christian community, a pretty new church in Corinth, learning how to show both grace and truth in a tricky situation. So now I'm going to quickly summarize the passage and then draw out four principles about living together in a church community that help us grow in grace and truth. Let me pray and we'll jump in. God, this stuff is really hard and we need you to guide us. So please help us now. Amen. I have good news. It's not just you that is annoyed by the noisy talker on the train. Uh, Researchers have actually done research into this and they've discovered that hearing one side of a conversation, like when somebody's on the phone, is actually more distracting than hearing two people in person talk to each other. Our brains subconsciously try to fill in the blanks in the conversation so our attention keeps getting drawn back and it can be really hard to fill in the blanks. And unfortunately, that's our problem with 1 and 2 Corinthians. There's been a bunch of letters written by the Corinthians to Paul. Paul's writing letters back to them. We only have two of the letters, so there's a lot of blanks for us to fill. But I think in this passage, we can get a good gist of what's going on. Things are a little tense right now between Paul and the Corinthians, but it sounds like things were even more tense before. Someone in the Corinthian community did something to hurt Paul. We're not told what it was, but it had reason to cause him grief. The result, however, was that the majority of Corinthians decided to exercise some sort of punishment against the person who wronged Paul. Again, we don't learn what this punishment is, but the result is that the man who wronged Paul has expressed regret and grief over what he's done. And now Paul wants the Corinthians to forgive and comfort that man, to reaffirm their love for him. Paul assures them that in solidarity with them, he's forgiven the man too. That's the basic summary of the passage, of the situation in Corinth. But despite the lack of details we have, these verses contain some really helpful principles about what it might look like to live as a community of Christians. In these verses, I see four principles for living as a community of grace and truth. So principle one, just diving straight into the deep end. Principle one, to resist Satan, we need both grace and truth. If you go down to the bottom of the passage in verse 11, Paul's concern through this whole situation of conflict is that Satan wouldn't outwit them through his schemes. Satan and his spiritual forces are actively seeking to oppose followers of Jesus in the world. Satan wants to discourage, divide, damage churches. 
Sometimes his schemes are obvious. A big conflict or a horrible betrayal of trust. But other times his schemes can be subtle. Perhaps as we seek grace and truth, he might just sort of push us or nudge, nudge, nudge us too much in the direction of one at the expense of the other with really damaging results. Now think of parenting. Uh, That illustration mightn't resonate with you as much as it resonates with me, but try your best. Parents are always on a knife edge. We run the risk of either being too strict or not strict enough. So when we're being too strict, we can crush our kids under the weight of rules and expectations. But on the other hand, parents can be too loose, too permissive. They can fail to give their kids boundaries at all with the results that these kids grow up a different kind of damage. In parenting, we need grace and we need truth. And churches are the same. There are churches that are addicted to rules. They are controlling, nitpicking, guilt-inducing, self-righteous, legalistic and moralistic communities of joyless duty. These kind of churches don't produce people that love Jesus. But Satan loves these kind of churches. Other churches can be so committed to being non-judgmental that they, they can be so committed to tolerance that they have nothing to stand for. In the name of love, they can be so gracious, so forgiving, understanding, permissive, that their love doesn't help anyone grow. They can't protect and guide hurting people who want to throw off damaging habits and broken behaviours. These kind of churches seek so hard to accept the world that they have nothing to offer the world. These kind of churches don't produce people that honour Jesus. And Satan loves these kind of churches too. God calls us not just the truth, not just to grace, but to both. So let's have a commitment to truth. Let's have a culture of grace. Let's have a community for Christ. Principle number two. When the consequences of sin are communal, we need a communal response. In verse 5, Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief, meaning this man, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Sometimes, maybe even usually, when we disobey Jesus, it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts a whole lot of people. And when that's the case, when the consequences are communal, we might need a communal response. In this situation that Paul is writing about, a majority of the church have exercised a punishment against the man who grieved Paul and and grieved them all. And Paul affirms that that was the right course of action. It demonstrated their commitment to truth, their commitment to follow Jesus. A few years ago at 6pm, we had a bit of a problem. There was a really unhelpful unhelpful culture developing where people were starting to nitpick about the music. Uh, Band leaders were regularly giving complaints or advice or direction on how they could be doing it better. Now, I feel like I personally get so much grace from the people of St. Matt's. But I wonder if sometimes our volunteers get criticised a little bit more. 
Anyway, this, this culture, it was critical, it was nitpicky, it was discouraging and I think cultivating a sense of self-entitlement. And so we had to speak about it from the front. I regularly check in with the band leaders. Maybe they think I could do it a little more regularly. That's a different story. But uh, we caught up two weekends ago to check in on how things were going. And I just asked, you know, has that culture come back at all? And they said it hasn't come back to this day for years. How good is that? I am delighted that that's the case. Thank you for making that the case. A communal problem, a communal response, and a great outcome. In that example, a number of people were being critical, and so a communal response made sense. But in this example in Corinth, a communal response is needed even when the sin is just by an individual. When an individual behaves in a sinful way that significantly impacts the rest of the community, the community needs to respond to the individual. And that might mean disciplining, or as Paul calls it, punishing the individual. Imposing consequences on someone in a church setting sounds really confronting and I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels a bit uncomfortable with this language. So let's get to the next principle and I think it'll help us understand. Principle number three. The goal of discipline is restoration. In verse six, our translation says, the punishment inflicted upon him by the majority is sufficient. And in some ways I wish our Bible translation didn't use the word punishment here. The Greek word is epidemia. You gonna write that down? No? Alright. Why did I bother? Alright. Uh, this is the only time the word epitomia is used in the New Testament. So it's a little hard to know exactly how to translate it because we don't get to see how Paul uses it elsewhere, for example. But it has the sense of an official act of discipline. And that's what a punishment is, right? So in that sense it's a good translation. But I think in our culture, when we talk about punishment, we think of it in terms of exacting a payment from someone. We want to make someone suffer as a payment for their wrongdoing. We make them pay. That's what we often think of as punishment. And that's not at all the idea Paul has here when he talks about epitomia. On two other occasions, Paul calls for a communal response to individual sin. In both 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul calls for people not to associate with particular people whose sin is damaging the whole community. But then he goes on to say that the goal of this is that those people would be saved. The goal isn't to punish. The goal isn't to make someone pay. The goal is they want to follow Jesus again. The goal is repentance, restoration, reconciliation. If we don't have standards for people in our community, then we're not trying to protect them from the damage that sin can do to them and can do to others in the community too. We can't just pretend that some behaviours aren't damaging. We need a commitment to truth, not pretending. But the goal isn't to make someone pay. The goal is to bring them back to Jesus. It's not enough to have a commitment to truth. We need a culture of grace too. Now, these principles are not easy to apply. We need so much wisdom and care as we respond to sin so that we aren't a church that forgets grace, we're not a church that forgets truth. But as an example of what this can look like, in our church, we are committed to having clear and appropriate expectations of our staff and our volunteer leaders. And we seek to keep each other accountable to those expectations. 
When necessary, we've asked people to step out of leadership roles, hopefully just for a time, to encourage them to repentance with the prayerful hope they can return to leadership or at least come back to Jesus. When appropriate and necessary, we've done this publicly in order to have a communal response. If you think we are under-responding or over-responding to certain circumstances, I really want to encourage you to come and talk to me or talk to Ron about that rather than talking to somebody else in our congregation. Because I think Ron and I, we want to learn and grow in this as we lead here. But since this responsibility is communal, you fit in as well. If you can see a person that is damaging themselves or damaging others in the community by their behaviour, pray about it and consider whether you might be the appropriate person to bring that up with them. But if you're going to do that, do it in mercy. Do it out of love. Do it with grace. Principle number four. Forgiveness makes us strong. The Corinthian troublemaker has been disciplined by the majority and the result is that he now feels significant grief. He feels remorse. The discipline has started to achieve its goal. Now instead, Paul writes, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Paul urges them to reaffirm their love for him and he assures them that he has forgiven the man too. The man doesn't have to now work his way back into everyone's good graces because that wouldn't really be grace, would it? Instead, the Corinthians are called to let go of any hard feelings and to express their love for him. The goal is restoration. Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians they need to be tougher on sin and harder on the sinner because toughness isn't strength. Toughness is not strength. No, forgiveness is what makes us strong. Forgiveness is what holds together a community of grace and truth. Forgiveness is what created this community in the first place. Even though we were, each of us, so far from God, out of his community, pushing away his care, Jesus died in our place. He received our deadly punishment for sin on himself so that we wouldn't have to. He secured God's forgiveness for us forever. Every one of us needs God's forgiveness. And we only truly belong to his, his community when we admit that and accept his forgiveness. That's a foundational truth we have to remember. And since being forgiven is so foundational, we have to extend forgiveness to each other. When we do that, when we forgive each other, it makes our community strong able to deal with sin, able to resist Satan, able to engage our world with grace and truth. So let's have a commitment to truth, a culture of grace, a community for Christ. Again, I want to stress putting all this together isn't easy. God loves to help us in this, but even with his help, it's not easy. I think it really is worth it. You imagine the scene on the train before. This time I want you to imagine a community that really is committed to truth. A community that acts with integrity and honesty. A community that wants to obey and honour Christ. A community that wants to guard and protect one another from harm, even if that requires awkward conversations. Imagine a community that, despite that commitment to truth, 
isn't self-righteous or judgmental. Instead, it has a culture of grace. Imagine a community that is kind and generous and rich in mercy. Imagine a community where people want to understand instead of condemn. Imagine a community where forgiveness is normal because we remember that we have all been forgiven. Wouldn't that be a community worth belonging to? Wouldn't that be a community worth fighting for? Wouldn't that be a community worth inviting others into? Let's have a commitment to truth, a culture of grace, a community for Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are stubborn and proud, indignant, eager to blame others instead of ourselves and a whole bunch of other things. And it makes it really hard to have a community that honours Christ. And so we pray all the more for your help, that you'd be changing us from the inside out. You'd be making us more and more like Jesus, filled with grace and truth, with the result that we would have a beautiful community for us to be part of and for others to join as well. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.